0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah 35, the first 10 verses. Let us pray together for the Lord to illumine our hearts. Sunday after Sunday Lord we light our candles as a reminder that your light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now illuminate our hearts with your word and your spirit, that we may see Jesus and his work. Amen. Let the wilderness and dry land rejoice. Let the desert celebrate and blossom. Like the rose, let it bloom everywhere. Let it celebrate, indeed, in joyous shouts. Lebanon's glory has been given to it, and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the limp hands, and brace the feeble knees. Say to those with fleeting hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, our God comes with vengeance. With divine recompense, he comes and will save you. Then blind eyes will be opened, and deaf ears will be opened. Then the lame will leap like a doe, and the mute tongue will shout in joy. When waters burst in the wilderness And streams burst in the desert Then the dazzling hot places Will become pools And the thirsty lands Will become springs of water In the haunt of the jackals Where they rest Grasses will become reeds and rushes And there a highway will be And it will be called a holy way. The unclean will not cross it, but it is for them the way, the way's travelers. And not even fools will go astray. No lion will be there, nor any violent beast cross it. None will be found there so that the redeemed may walk it. And God's ransomed will return and enter Zion with singing, and eternal joy will be on their heads. Rejoicing and gladness will overtake them, sorrow and groans will flee. The word of the Lord.
1: thank you so much for that poetic reading, that was wonderful. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. This is on, right? Yes. It is a privilege to be here. Susanna and I have been here shy of just two years, and we are so grateful for Geneva and the warm welcome that we have received um, this time we've been here. So. Um, Thank you for this invitation, Pastor Jim. And I look forward to giving our word to us today. So before we begin, I'd like to give a note on our translation. It is a bit clunky on purpose uh, because I translate the same Hebrew words consistently to show the underlying Hebrew. I also have broken each verse down into A, B, C, D, E segments since that makes explaining the poetry easier. I know that for those of you who have studied literature, especially poetry, will appreciate this. So, today's Advent sermon comes from Isaiah 35, a prophetic announcement of salvation. But before diving into this wonderful text, I would like to share how I plan to approach this passage through three contexts. (laughs) First, we will look at it from a wider Old Testament context. Second, we'll look at our passage as poetry, exploring concepts of the exodus, that is God's returning of his people through the desert to the promised land. As many of you know, I'm a poetry scholar. Po- passages like this get me very excited and I hope that you would indulge me as I share some observations that often may not appear in a typical sermon. And third, we will look at Isaiah 3 in its New Testament context. Now, before we begin, let me share one more thing that hopefully ties all these things together. Isaiah 35 announces how the exilic communities can finally return home for good to a fully restored and glorious Zion. Zion is the altar name for Jerusalem on account of how Jerusalem rests upon Mount Zion. The concept of home is a scarlet thread that runs through all three of our contexts. The Old Testament, the Poetic, and the New Testament. The song, I'll Be Home for Christmas, exemplifies some of my thoughts about Christmas and going home. Bing Crosby, the original singer, cast himself as a soldier stationed across um, in Europe overseas during World War II expressing his deep longing to be home for Christmas. The song is bittersweet since its chorus reveals that this soldier knows returning home for Christmas is but a dream, and hence the lyrics, I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams. The the song ends by fading out to this line, portraying how the soldier is drifting to sleep so that he may be home for Christmas, if only in his dreams. The idea of going home in Christmas is deeply ingrained in our society. Whether we lo- um, we have loved ones return home, or we ourselves go home, wherever that may be. The same motif is also in the Old Testament, where after Israel lost its monarchy, Israel had their hopes on a Messiah, the Christ the king who is expected to gather and bring all his exiled peoples home. Home to Zion. And like Crosby's song, going home is of paramount importance. Most of these visions of going home in prophetic prophecy, like Isaiah 35, take a dream-like appearance in how glorious that return home will be. There's also the cliche of how you can never go home again. Now I felt this most strongly a couple of years ago when we went back to Los Angeles, my home. I realized that my home city for my childhood and early adult is nothing like the current LA today. I can drive by my old seminary, our old church, the church where Susanna and I were married and recall all these wonderful memories. But the fact is, I do not belong to this city anymore. And the men who have may have recognized me all those years ago, they are gone. Some have moved, some have passed away and others are still around, but they've become ghosts of the past. The home that I remember is not a home that necessarily recognizes me. Perhaps this is true for many of you here today as well. Cliches are powerful because they are full of truth in so many ways. I will be going home for Christmas to LA, but I sadly know that the home of my past is no longer. And yet my home here in Wisconsin, which I love, is in some ways also not my proper home. Since all of our family is in California and Wisconsin is not where I grew up, in a certain sense, there is no home for me. We will explore throughout this sermon more on this idea of home and how it relates to joy. Our first context, Old Testament context. In Genesis 3, the fall of humanity, uh, in the fall of humanity, creation, our home, so to speak, uh, falls and becomes a pale version of the home that was planned for us. Adam and Eve are driven from the Garden of Eden, the first home, and forced to live by the sweat of their brows. Serving the rest of the Old Testament, we see that God, however, is at work in redeeming not just humanity, but all of creation, our home in a very wide sense. In the tabernacle instructions in Exodus 26, we see how the tabernacle is designed as a mobile garden of Eden, a restored creation in which God inhabits. We see this clearly in the cherubim, the angels which guard the borders of the Garden of Eden, woven into the curtains of the tabernacle to guard the borders of God's holy of holies. In Isaiah 65, a vision of restored creation where violence is banished. We see lions and calves lounging together and lions eating straw. The hope of the Old Testament in terms of home is an attempt to prove wrong the cliche, you can never really go home, to return back to our original, unfallen home. But in the Old Testament, for the most part, this hope of a returned, restored home never fully materialized. But it remains strong in the prophetic announcements, often resembling a dream to keep Israel's hopes strong. Now, coming to our passage, we've seen the opening lines that Judah, a desert land, is called to bloom. The assumption here is that the nation's homeland is blighted and barren like a desert from its multiple wars with the Assyrian and Babylonian empires, including incursions from the hostile neighbors uh, like Edom. However, the land is ravaged not only because of these geopolitical conflicts, but also as a means of God's punishment for the nation's sins. The nation's home is scarred and laid bare like a desert, but now on the verge of renewal. It is called to rejoice, to bloom, and to blossom. The question that must be asked here, for what reason is the land renewing in bloom? And with that, we turn to our second context, context two, the poetic context. In terms of the passage as a whole, Isaiah 35 is a prophetic announcement of eschatological salvation. Eschatological in the sense of how Isaiah envisioned a final eschaton, complete salvation for the nation. That is the healing of the land and the triumphant return of God to Zion, where God has in tow all his rescued people who have been rescued, uh, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, scattered through the centuries by war. In short, God has forgiven the nation of their sins and has returned the people and the homeland to glory. As a result of this eschatological nature, the poem contains many miraculous elements. The transformation of the desert into water-filled lands, the healing of the blind, the deaf, the mute, and the crippled. And fittingly, poetry is used to express the tremendous sense of joy and gladness in this miraculous announcement of the return of the people and the return of the land. Because poetry is often jumpy in how it seemingly skips from one matter to another, breaking down our poem uh, into three movements is helpful. And here in our translation, actually I give us those three movements, parts one, two, and three. The land of Judah blooming, part one. Exodus anew, part two or movement two and the way home, movement three. And that because this is poetry, I, I uh, encourage you to follow along with the sermon uh, with that translation open. While these three movements may seem unrelated, allow me to explain how each section segues into the next through the theme of going home. The land of Judah blooming, movement one. The prophet calls upon the land to rejoice. The homeland of Judah is called to express their joy by blooming like a flower and becoming gloriously lush like Mount Carmel and the pasture lands of the Sharon Plain. Through the poetic parallelism, we see how joy and beauty are juxtaposed as two sides of the same coin. Joy begets beauty and beauty equally begets joy. The land is to rejoice by blooming. And yet this blossoming is also a source of joy in itself. Now, if you look at verse 2e, the first movement's uh, final line, a conspicuously longer poetic line, which signals a peak, a climax, it explains that the homeland is to rejoice with glorious splendor of flowers and lush vegetation because the land itself will witness the return of God's own glorious splendor, just as it was witnessed in the first Exodus out of Egypt. Here the concept of God's glory is worth exploring. So let me take a little sidetrack. In the book of Exodus, and that's where in the Old Testament, The glory of God, or the kavod, kavod is glory, the kavod of God is described as the cloud by day and fire by night. And this fire would be a lightning storm, uh, which led Israel through the wilderness. Whenever God's glory or kavod appears, God is appearing in power and glory to do something spectacular. So here in Isaiah 35, the wilderness rejoices and blooms because God is coming back home to Zion in his his glory. Just as we put on our finest clothing for our biggest celebrations, the barren land is called to put on its finest in anticipation of the joy in God's return. But here we must ask, why is God returning? And with this, we move to our second movement. Exodus anew. Just as in the initial Exodus, here God is returning to Zion because he has gathered and saved his exiled peoples. In verse 4, God comes in mighty vengeance to dispense justice to those that have been forcibly removed, his people. This is not some lofty faraway God, but the same Yahweh of the Exodus who fought Pharaoh at the Red Sea. However, in this new and better Exodus, God additionally heals the blind, deaf, mute, and lame. That is, those who normally would not be able to make the journey home easily, those who would not be able to see where they're going, to hear directions, to ask for directions, or to just walk. In the second exodus, not only are the people healed for the return, but the desert is also transformed. Streams course throughout. Dazzling, hot, sandy places become pools. And in verse 7D, the climactic final line for the second movement, this desert is not just an abundant, it's just not abundant with waters, but also one full of reeds and rushes, yielding an abundance of food, fowl and fish. Just like the first Exodus, God provides food and water, but much more. God makes it possible for all to return, the blind, the deaf, the mute, the lame. They all return to Zion. He removes the ills and transforms the desert. God makes the journey home light, easy, and delightful. Our third and our final movement, the way home. In the final movement, Isaiah opened, uh, again ups the ante and how the second exodus is far better. Whereas in the first exodus, Israel wandered for 40 years, this one in contrast has a highway that ensures safe and special passage. Now, in the ancient Aries, highway is not like what we have in the Beltline, right? It's, it's just a nice road. So even those lacking wisdom cannot wander off this path. This way is a holy way, meaning is set apart for God and his people. And as a result, the unclean may not come upon it, and neither any dangers like wild beasts. In verse 10, the poem ends climactically with a military motif that is turned upside down. In verse 10c, the eternal joy upon the returnee's heads conveys how this return and restoration is one for eternity, where God and the people will dwell together in harmony. Verses 10d through e, the climactic couplet. So here couplet just means two, two poetic lines that are paired up, coupled. builds up, uh, built upon the etern- eternality of joy from 10c by portraying a battle of joy and gladness as overtaking the returnees, like soldiers coming upon unsuspecting enemies. The returnees possess the type of joy that captures them. It is the type of joy that cannot be resisted. But the real enemy, grief and groaning, flee because joy and gladness have defeated them and captured the people that were formerly under grief and groaning. The poem ends with this peaking triumphant figurative battle, of joy and gladness driving away grief and groaning eternally. Whereas Israel for centuries had to flee their homeland on account of foreign aggressions, whereas Israel was captured by grief and groaning by how Zion was destroyed and or occupied by foreigners, now God has returned, rescued, restored, and recaptured his people with everlasting joy and gladness for age eternal in Zion, their home. Moving on to our third and final context, the New Testament context. We see that this restoration of Zion and Israel, by the time we get to the New Testament times, was only partial and far short of passages like Isaiah 35. Indeed, the exiles returned from Babylon But the desert was not transformed, and neither was their homeland. In fact, the country was never as glorious as before. It was in tatters. And Zion never received their eternal joy. Exiles returned under Persian rule. Then the Greeks ruled. And in the New Testament, Judah was nothing but a vassal to Rome. In sum, Israel was still waiting for this great joy and gladness, this great salvation announced in Isaiah 35 despite being in Zion. So, was Isaiah 35 just hyperbole by the prophet Isaiah? Was it just rhetoric to encourage exilic peoples to return back to Zion? As often is the case, the answer is Jesus. We see how Jesus fulfills the hopes and dreams of the Old Testament in ways that most, including Israel, could never imagine. I illustrate with the story of Jesus healing the blind man at Jericho upon his final entry into Jerusalem where we all know he was crucified. This story appears in uh, the three Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, but here I give Mark's. So please allow me to read it to you. They came to Jericho, okay, and uh, parenthetically, Jericho is not far from Jerusalem, Okay, so bear that in mind. As he and his disciples and a very large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind, okay, blind beggar was sitting by the roadside. Actually, the Greek is way. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet. but he cried out even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood and said, call him here. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart which by the way uh, is often the translation for do not fear from the Hebrew into the Greek. Get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, my teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight. And followed him on the way. Of all the things that Jesus must have done on the way to Jerusalem, notice how Mark includes the story right before Jesus enters Jerusalem. It's not a coincidence. Notice how Jesus heals the blind man and he follows him to Jerusalem on the way. Not a subtle allusion to today's text, Isaiah 35. If you know Isaiah 35, as our ancient Jewish readers did, then this is a huge signpost screaming, God indeed has come to save us for eternal joy and gladness to chase away grief and groaning. Texts like Isaiah 35 and Mark 10 allow us to celebrate during Advent what Jesus had done through his arrival on earth, in his return to Zion, and in his inauguration of a new age through this resurrection. Jesus' coming and resurrection is part of the grand story we celebrate in how God is in the process of making all of creation our proper home again. And again, we see this in Revelation 21. Please allow me to read it for us. This is from the NRSV. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his people's and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away or fled. Here in our passage, we see that when Jesus returns, our other reason for celebrating Advent, our home of creation is remade. Heaven, God's home, comes down to earth. Now the translation home here is actually idiomatic. The actual word there is the Greek for tabernacle. In other words, God's heavenly tabernacle, God's heavenly abode, God's home, descends and transforms our home creation, healing and redeeming all of creation so that God and humanity may dwell together in harmony as in the beginning, as in the Garden of Eden. Notice how mourning, crying, and pain, and even death are no more. Grief and groaning have departed. God's heavenly tabernacle will descend upon earth, transforming not just Judah as in Isaiah 35, but all of creation beyond Israel's greatest dreams, back into our proper home, fulfilling Isaiah 35 beyond anyone's imagination. As I shared earlier, the cliche, we can never go back home is so true in many ways, especially as we get older. Christmas is an exceptionally difficult time for many. Our home is not the same because many of our loved ones are no longer among us. Home may feel empty and lonely. Our home can be a place of pain. And perhaps this is why Christmas is a paradoxical time. During Advent, we celebrate the first coming of Jesus. And yet we also are reminded that we are longing for his return to set all of creation right. To allow us truly to return to the home that God had intended. However, the cliche you can never go home again also does not rightfully apply to us because all of creation will someday become the home that we have longed for. The one that feels right, is right, and allows us to be right with each other and God. This is the joy to the world. This is the home that will be. Let us rise, let us sing. Joy to the world.